West Virginia Writers Podcast Bonus Show Number 7. Hola, listeners, and welcome to Bonus Show 7 of the West Virginia Writers Podcast. We haven't done a bonus show in the new year yet because our first two regular podcasts were double size as it stood. However, for this first bonus show, I've chosen to play a special extra-long recorded live reading that's easily going to be quadrupled the average bonus show length. So that's more bonus show for your bonus show buying dollar, which last time I looked was zero dollars because it's free. Our subject today is West Virginia Writers member Sal Batasi. Sal is a retired English teacher who's the former editor of New Worlds Unlimited and Poet Tidings, the newsletter for the New Jersey Poetry Society. In fact, before Sal and his wife Sharon moved to the Mountain State, they did indeed live in the Garden State. He's written a number of poetry books, including A Dusting of Starfall, Boy on a Swing, and other poems, Sun Sparks the Day. And he's also the author of the poetry volume, uh, actually, he's the author of the volume Painless Poetry, which is a workshop for educators teaching poetry appreciation and creative writing. Pudding House Books chose him for their greatest hits series, collecting his best poetry from 1970 through the year 2000. And his most recent book is called A Family of Sicilians, Stories and Poems. And many of these links you'll be able to find on our podcast website, wvwriters.org slash podcast.html. Now, I didn't meet Sal until recently and really only knew of him from the West Virginia Writers Roundtable email forum, where he's an, a frequent participant in the writing exercises. And so I had no idea he was also a resident of Mercer County until I happened to run into him at a lecture in Princeton. He invited me to come out to a poetry reading he was giving at the Princeton Public Library, along with poet Jeff Travers, and also graciously agreed for me to record it for use in our recorded live reading podcast series. So on the very cold night of December 3rd, 2009, I ventured out to the library for what turned out to be a very enjoyable reading. Sal certainly knows his craft, and as you'll be able to tell, he writes from the heart. Well, I can't tell you how happy I am that you came, because uh, if you didn't, we would have done like we did last year. Remember, Sharon? We walked in and there was nobody here. So I've been known to read to my wife poetry, but there's no need to come to a library and do it. I can do it at home. So uh, we just turned around and went home. I felt so bad, you know, because poetry, to me, uh, maybe because I've arrived at poetry and read it and love it, is very important. I mean, it, it's soothing. It, it can do so many nice things for a person's heart, soul, mind, the works. I was at a reading in uh, New Jersey once at Princeton, uh, Princeton University Bookstore. And when I got done, a lady ran up to me. She was in tears. She said, that poem you read, uh, I read about 10 of them, you know? She said, um, the one about, and I said yes, and she said, after you read that poem, I knew what I wanted in my, what my decision would be in my life. And I'm thinking, hey, wait a minute now. The poem had nothing to do with decisions, had nothing to do with people necessarily making a, a choice. And I said to her, well, I'm very happy about that. You must be reading into my poem. And she said, well, whatever it was, what you said saved me. And I started thinking, well, that's wonderful. You never know what you could do. So I'm going to start off with my first poem. This is, um, in fact, uh, the first three of my poems <clears throat> come from a chapbook I just came out with called Boy on a Swing. It's called Eight, the number eight. <clears throat> when they ask how many are her children, her response is always quick. 
she tells them eight and I remind her four of them are gone but she smiles her enigmatic way and says eight children God gave me on loan four he took back four are with me still but ma I said how many children do you have she points her trembling finger in my face repeats in a weak voice not much louder than before eight eight he gave me eight and one sweet day all eight of you will reunite in God's good heaven I have eight not four or five or six or even seven then she closes her eyes wearied of it all and rests I am the fourth child we are eight The next one's called Keep It, It's Yours. It's a bit of, a, a lot of this chapbook is autobiographical about my life. And I'm really sorry because I put a poem in there to explain this in the chapbook about my grandfather who finally quit drinking. And I go through this whole thing. And the reviewer, who one of the reviewers of the book said how, how wonderful it was that all of my poems were true. I never had a grandfather that, you know what I mean. But I, I just wrote that poem and thought it fit. So, but this is called "Keep It." It's yours. First, Uncle Joe laughed at my story. Then he took something from his pocket and dropped it in mine, with that knitted eyebrow look of his that said, "It's yours. Keep it and buy yourself something." And for the rest of the visit, he talked his Sicilian about how they all could use a little financial help and then to handle and then to handle the dying economy. He reminded us about being laid off from jobs, wishing they could send to Italy some packages of clothing and food. And all the while I'm thinking, what did he drop in my pocket? What can I buy with it? Is it a Franklin half dollar? I tortured myself not touching it, waiting till we were back home. But on the subway to Brooklyn, I couldn't wait. So I fished it out of my pocket. A silver dollar that could have bought popcorn and candy and movies at the Rainbow Theater. A silver coin still shiny and bright 60 years later, the 1890 Liberty Lady sits in a ring box. I tape shut because spending it would make the thrill disappear. That long ago, long ago day would vanish like a Glenn Ford movie, like the last kernel of popcorn, those M&Ms melting in my mouth. <laughs> This is on, a little bit on the humorous, because I don't believe that poets should just write about dying and gloom, although my wife says most of my poems are just that way. Um, I try to mix them, and this one's called Treasure Beyond Gold. I never lived the upscale life, my wallet's anorexic. 
if marriage meant I pay my wife, my lack of funds would wreck it. I've saved my dreams on layaway, but they're still out there waiting. Unless I win the lottery, I guess they'll go on laying. Now you might think this poor boy is blue, whose bottom line is red. But think again, one thing is true. Sharon loves me and upset. <laughs> I was waiting. Why aren't I getting a put? Just kidding. Just kidding. My wife Sharon. You thought it was my girlfriend? A wager. His wife argued he was going deaf. He insisted he heard every word. I'll bet you five dollars, said his wife, you don't. Oh yeah, he replied. How much? <laughs> On the road to... And that's true too, by the way. That happened over breakfast one day. On the road to recovery. <clears throat> they say she's making progress every day. The first time she was betrayed by a man whom she loved, she slashed her wrists. The second time it happened, she slashed his. <laughs> and this is the last, I mean, another uh, short poem called A Sad Delivery. He sent a letter to his girl to say how much he loved her. Then to another wrote goodbye and hoped she would recover. But in his dizzy state of mind, he realized much later the envelopes got all mixed up. His lovers, now a hater. <laughs> and, all right, this one's called Sweet Parting. We always speak of Mr. Death, you know. Mr. Death is coming. So I was thinking one day of my grandfather. My grandfather was 89 when he passed away. I was there in Sicily back in 1965. And uh, he used to always talk about the Italian pastry, how wonderful it was. So I tried to put death and pastry together. Not always a great combination, but I, I tried. And it's called Sweet Parting. When Grandpa saw death, she was on a mountain baking Italian pastry the way he liked it. Ganoli, bursting with rich white cream. Brown cakes dripping rum down her long white apron. He did not expect death to be a woman, nor those final moments to taste so sweet, nor hear laughter like bird chatter up there on that mountain he had known and loved. Grandpa had braced himself for senior death, imagining this angry old man, skinless, all bones, a sickle in his fist, ready to cut down a life, not in a baker's cap and apron, but black hood and robe. Instead, he found a beauty about death. Shades of rose blooming in her cheeks and her eyes twinkling skylights. In her company, handing ingredients as she summoned them, 
with those departed souls Grandpa loved and lost. More sugar, his wife Anna says, to death. And more butter now, says his brother John. No, it needs another egg, says his sister Giuseppina. But death is a woman used to having her own way. Everything is fine now, she says. He sees death before his eyes. Daughter-in-law Rosalia reports from death bedside. But she cannot know what fills Grandpa's eyes with tears of joy, not fear. She cannot smell the pastry baking without fire. Grandpa, in his dying, smiles at death, smiles at the Blessed Mother who dusts flour from her blue dress, and at St. Anthony feeding flakes of cannoli to the baby Jesus nestled in his arms. May I leave now, asks Grandpa, and all around his bed we place our hands upon him as if to keep him with us, as if to keep his soul from floating free of us towards heaven. It is his last breath that fills the empty spaces in the room. Walking again now, he calls Anna, then Signora Death. No one sees the woman feed him. No one sees them take him by the hands and direct him towards the light. Finally, Rosalia of Rosalia breaks the deathly silence with her tears. <clears throat> when we were children, we uh, probably remember the Roses Are Red, Violets Are Blue poems. This one's simply called Roses Are Red. Their petals <clears throat> soaked in flower blood because when they first bloomed in the first garden, that first week, they stood in stemmed rows, asking God, the gardener, to give them beating hearts so they would know life's painful sacrifice enough to shed blood when these hearts would sometimes break. Just as he had kindly given them the dew of tears to shed each morning, as sadly they would long for the brightness of the dawn beating hearts to pump blood that could be shed. This is what these roses asked. And God, the gardener, was moved by their flower prayer. But he wanted them at least, at least they be spared what pain would come when Eden was no more. So he compromised and soaked their white petals in the blood of his own son, that would be shed somewhere in time. Um, in October, uh, Ed Kraft, I don't know if you know Ed Kraft, but Ed, Ed Kraft uh, at our senior center was the man who uh, directed the exercise program and the dance group he was the kind of guy, you know, that um, he just loved helping people. He had been a miner. So you know the story of the miners. Many of them get black long. And at any rate, on uh, October 6th, he passed away from that uh, lung cancer. 
And so I wrote this poem for him. It's called You Lifted Yourself. When you glided from this world, dear Ed, you lifted yourself from tenuous human machinery that creaked and tugged along the high wires. When with laughter you strove to balance yourself, dismiss the haplessness of one day tumbling earthward. The hour you did fall, a quartet of angels formed a hallowed circle below of hands and white wings. A supernatural net caught your soul fluttering down from a life grown too precarious. Then with your new companions, emissaries from the God of light, without breath, without heartbeat, you glided on a cloud from this world to paradise in the next, where neither sorrow nor tomorrow could threaten to silence your laughter or slow the tempo of your dancing feet. The next two poems come from a book I wrote with a friend of mine in New Jersey. <clears throat> he wrote half the book of poems and I wrote the other half of the book. And it's called, Two Can Play This Game. It's called Saving My Father. <clears throat> I saved my father in a book, wrote his marrow and his bones on blue-veined lines, and delighted how he walked through the stanzas of my poems. I saved him in a book, traded sorrow for sweet songs, sung in happier times, and recited all his wisdom inside the pages of these poems. I lured my father to this book, enticed the fellow from his stone, with magic rhymes invited him to stay in the shelter of these lines. I saved him in a book, in the comfort of these poems, in the heartbeat of my verse, in the cadence of these words, in his dance across the pages where he lives forever, ageless. I saved my papa in this book. And uh, my mother would hear, she'd say, What's the matter? No poem for me? <laughs> so I have a poem for my mother. My father's gone 22 years, but my mother is 95. Still, still going. I wish I could say still going strong. But The gift he gave. When God looked out at the world he made and saw how his creatures had forgotten his gift of creation, when God saw the world rich in poverty, ruined by war, filled with those empty of love, and when God heard the hungry children crying, tricked, abandoned in the streets, when God thought of me, my brothers and my sisters, not yet born into that unsafe world, he created our mother. You know, Sharon, I must be getting better because I used to uh, 
read poems and have to have a handkerchief in one hand. I'm not kidding. Just a little anecdote. My father, um, <laughs> he used to be a great uh, philosopher. He'd tell you stories. I think I, I think he had more parables than Jesus. I mean, he always had a story and it had something behind it. But anyway, uh, if you told the story, he would prolong the story and he'd always have in his back pocket this white. And if you made him laugh, he would laugh like this, which meant truce, because he couldn't keep <laughs> laughing, you know. It was just, and I used to say to him, Pop, you're a little old to be crying, because I was 15, you know, 14. And he said, I never cried when I was a boy. I'm, I'm making up for it now. And I never thought I would get to the day where I would do the same, you know, get choked up over a story or a poem. But this, uh, these four poems now come from a book I wrote for Sharon. <clears throat> I have to tell you a little bit of background, all right? <clears throat> We've been married 13 years. It's not a long time. And almost from the beginning, I used to get a little book. I used to buy them, you know, in the dollar stores. They're empty books. They're just, and I would fill poems in there. So if it were her birthday, you know, I would take the September 9, you know, and the 4, and I'd add them and, dump and multiply by two, whatever, and come up with that many poems in the book. Well, after about, oh, I did that for her birthday, for our anniversary, sometimes for Christmas, always for Valentine's Day. And the books added up. And one day I said to her, do you mind very much if I shared these in a book? Because I want to take the best of those poems and put them in a love poem book. And that's how I wrote A Fine Dusting of Starfall. But anyway, uh, the next four poems are from that book. Of course, I have to blow my nose. What did I just get them saying? <laughs> lost at sea. One day, I found myself lost in a sea of missing days, rowing nowhere, awestruck by the slosh of foreign waters and a darkening gray ceiling of sky that appeared to be crashing down on me. This is what loveless means. This is what the heart feels in lonely places. This is the reason tears flow from the well of painful memory, why minds creak past laughter in familiar rooms. Then you found me, lost on that tumultuous sea, waving my oar skyward, crying for deliverance. You suddenly appeared, an angel, wingless, heart full of grace, wordless without guile, the restoration sculptor of a heart tarnished by false love's deceit. Thanks. Was that one about Sharon? <laughs> uh, sure it was. None other. This is a poem called, uh, I had written about four or five of these in the series. It's called Berwyn Lake Revisited. You all know Berwyn Lake? Yeah. Uh, it's in McDowell County. It's a beautiful lake. If I could, I would name all of these flowers. Say which trees end before tall times begin. What starts the ducks to quack on Berwyn Lake? Be privy to the secrets insects tell. And ride within an empty cellophane bag 
that sails its crinkled shape upon the lake. Today, like last year, and again the year before, we sat here at our we sit here at our familiar picnic place of stone and wood, witnesses to a West Virginia June where nature plays out its green again, and the bridge, like a wooden rainbow, spans the lake between the roadside and the wild. Here we are once more, the two of us, still locked in life's embrace. Same time, same place, love like seasons renewed, yet changeless like this summer scene on Berwyn Lake. <clears throat> Thank you. This one's called Two's a Company. Petrock had his Laura, Dante, Beatrice. Browning loved Elizabeth. So how about a kiss? Shakespeare loved the theater. Barrymore, his booze. John Booth's last performance got very bad reviews. Nixon had his Watergate. Clinton smoked cigars. Carter had his liver pills. Jack loved movie stars. Some bugs live in soil. Some inside a rug. Some are quite annoying. So how about a hug? Poets spend their free time writing lines of bliss. But I'm not writing at this moment. So how about a kiss? <laughs> this is called the me singing rock and roll. Sharon's laughing because she knows I can't sing. She says, you sing like Bob Hope's brother. No hope. <laughs> the me you saw yesterday, the me you heard singing off key, in the morning shower, the me singing rock and roll from the fabulous 50s, the me who once carried a lucky ace comb for the dark pompadour I wore, like Jimmy Clanton, whom you say you never heard of, the me you claim never talks in my sleep, the me who wore a coat of black leather, the me who still looks like, who still looks for my father down dark, lonely streets, the me who catalogs dreams of fat and lean years. The me on the ferry backs of runaway squirrels. The me leaning over the Arno River Bridge. The me in a sunray in the crack of a door, clumsily groping for time. The me making faces in distorted funhouse mirrors. In Sunday morning puddles. In the windows of strangers. In magic lamps rubbed the wrong way, the me you saw chasing shadows of skyscrapers high as moonlight, the me of the now and the before, the me of never again, the me and the me, and the me you saw touching the granite of graves, the me peeling moments like dead layers of skin, the me who I am, who I've been, will one day become the me you say totters like a weather vane rooster flapping my arms as if I had wings. The me on the roof slant 
reaching for heaven the me on the roof slab loved by an angel okay I only have two poems left uh, well I have six haiku and then I have one uh, and then I'm done said, oh, he's still reading. <clears throat> One, burnt, brown, brittle face, autumn proudly shows the world is lined with wisdom. Two, hiding in the grass under a blanket of blade, ladybug lies still. Three, under Jesus' cross, robins wear a blood-red breast, a love's reminder. Four, at the core's center, seeds, napping in dark slumber, dream apple visions. Five, shamed, trembling oak tree, slave of the harsh tempest wind, captive of winter. And the last one, the upside to fall is the amnesia of trees. They forget leaves die. And this one... Um, this to a favorite poet of mine, Cesar Vallejo, the great Peruvian poet, you've heard of him, mm -hmm. he was, talk about an innovator in poetry, if you haven't read anything by him, you might want to look, and, I mean, uh, read. Um, he died in 1938. <clears throat> On some downtown, oh, by the name, uh, the title is For Vallejo. <clears throat> On some downtown cobblestone nightmare street in Peru, I hide in doorways that smell of cheap wine, watch La Policia rush by in search of me, listen to my heart boom towards implosion, and wonder how in God's name will I find Cesar Vallejo before the end of his next poem, before they come to close down his life. These are my nightmares, the horrors of dream that ride me in rios of blood nearly blind to exit aisles, to logic, alarm clocks screaming me free of these concrete feet. Vallejo, where are you hiding? Cesar, if you can hear me thinking, trembling, do not call out, but let the litany of your poems rattle off mute lips like monks at Matin, repentant lovers, the condemned, I have come a long distance to track you down in the past of your time, hide you in the crook of my shirt and arm, and let Dios grow wings for us, sail us to the future, a safe house in Brooklyn, a room with a bath, a place you can write, but when the police are all gone, your voice, a coda of silence, your body still as your pen, Cesar, your brother Miguel, whose amigos in Revolución, the woman you loved, all of you creak open the door through which I run, stone feet on stone ground to freedom. Mm -hmm.